Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, the story of these books, and if you have been here over the last few weeks, last week Pastor Christie preached a great message. Uh, we've been doing this series. This will be week four. If you want to get caught up, you can always listen to previous sermons on our website or on our app. Um, but the story is that the nation of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire, and they were sent into exile. So if you read the Old Testament, you'll there's this season where they, they got sent into exile. They basically were conquered, and the citizens in Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, areas and in the, in the nation of Israel were taken out. A lot of them were taken out and sent into the different cities in Babylon. And then what happened was is that the, the conquering empire would say, well, we're not going to just leave these cities vacant. We'll leave some of the original inhabitants, but then we're going to like backfill this thing with all of our citizens. And so what was the kingdom of Israel was now a lot of the Israelites have been removed and people from Assyria and Babylon have come in. And now there's like this mixture of culture and this mixture of what were the Jewish people and now all these outsiders. And, and that this is the period of exile. Now, the, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is after a period of about 70 years, the Israelites are allowed to return out of Babylon and into uh, their homeland to rebuild, to rebuild the temple. The, the book of Ezra is really the story of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding the city wall. So we're going to talk a little bit, a bit about that because there's this part of the story in Ezra and Nehemiah where there's this detail in the story that when you're reading it, it's like it seems weird. And it has to do with this idea of the Jewish people coming back and all of a sudden they realize our, our former cities and our former nation is now filled with all these outsiders, all these people from the out surrounding nations. And they have idolatry and they have wickedness in their life. And not only that, they have now intermarried and blended their culture with the remnants of Judaism. And, and it's this weird feeling of we're coming in and we're trying to be devoted to God, but now we're just surrounded by all these people who are, well, we would consider unrighteous. And it's this conflict that they feel as they've come back out of exile. So we're going to talk about that today. The exile occurred around 600 B.C., and at the time of the exile, the nation of Israel had actually already split into two kingdoms. We have a, we have a picture. This is a full service Sunday morning. Um, we have graphs and pictures. It'd be cool if we had like flannel, flannel graphs. Anyone remember that? Some of, some of the young people are like, what is that? Um, you know that material that all the, sh the shirts that you wear, flannel, we used to have big boards of it and we would stick things on it like a Velcro wall with like pictures of Sunday school lessons. We should do that for Sunday school. I'm way distracted today. This is the divided kingdom um, right before exile. So you see it's been divided into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. There's Judah in the, in the southern and Israel in the northern. Now, the capital of Israel is Samaria and the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. And so if you're reading through the Old Testament, especially through the books of Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, the, the time where they're talking about the kings of Israel, there's a while there where it's talking about the king of Israel and then the king of Judah. And you might be thinking, well, what is this? Well, that's why. There's a divided kingdom. And this is what the nation of Israel was like before the exile. Now, the northern kingdom was conquered first by the Assyrians. They were taken away and their cities were filled up with people from Assyria. And they began to blend culture and intermarry. And Assyrian idol worship became prominent in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon soon after. And the same thing. People from the surrounding region came in, 
filled in the cities of Judah and began to intermarry and blend their culture with the remaining people from Israel. So about 70 years later, they're allowed to return and rebuild, and the city of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom are filled with the people returning from exile. And like I said, they now see this kind of blend of culture and these outsiders and this intermarriage that has happened between the people of Israel and the people of Babylon. And there is a conflict. In fact, what Pastor Christie talked about last week is when they're trying to rebuild the wall, she talked about there were groups of people that were opposed to the rebuilding of the wall. They didn't want the city wall to be rebuilt. They didn't want the temple to be rebuilt. And a lot of that opposition came from that kind of blended culture of people that were like, we've been here for 70 years. We have our home. Things are fine. Why are you trying to take it back to the way it was before? So there was all this opposition, all this opposition to the rebuilding and conflict that was there. And in both Ezra and Nehemiah, there is a call. There's a moment. And here's where the story, if you've read it, it gets a little weird because you read it and you're like, there's this moment where Ezra and Nehemiah both call the people to repentance and specifically to repent for intermarriage and that all the the blended people, the half Jewish people and all the foreigners are basically kicked out of Judah and the southern kingdom. Now, all of these people, you know, they battled and they actually had quite a conflict about it. And when they were kicked out, they settled in the northern kingdom known as Samaria. And so in Samaria, this kind of half-Jewish, half-foreigner group of people and all the foreigners that had been in there, they settle in Samaria and they even set up their own temple to worship God on Mount Gerizim. And they claimed that they were the true children of God. And they set up their whole pattern of worship um, because it was this new group of people that had settled in the northern kingdom. And thus, we have the beginning of the Samaritan people. And if you've read any of the New Testament stories, you know that the Samaritan people were not widely and highly regarded by the Jewish people. They hated each other. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. There was great animosity between the two. And it starts from this moment in Ezra and Nehemiah, where the people that were there were kicked out because they were the unrighteous people. And they created their own pattern of temple worship, and it was this animosity between the two. The Samaritans hate the Jews because they had lived there, and the Jews came in and kicked them out. And the Jewish people hate the Samarians because they were the sign of impurity and unrighteousness that they were trying to rid themselves of. And the intermarriage with the surrounding idolatrous people was considered this great sin that they wanted to get rid of. So we have this conflict that started out in Ezra and Nehemiah, And by the time we get to Jesus' day, there is great hatred between those two groups of people. Now, the point is this. The desire to obey God and to pursue righteousness, even though when it started in Ezra and Nehemiah, it started as a God, we want to be devoted to you. And God was saying, yeah, you have to separate yourselves from this this pattern of idolatry from these other nations. What started... As a pursuit of righteousness, you can see it generations later, has resulted in the mistreatment of people and led to conflict and animosity and hatred to people who were not like you or who believed differently than you or who acted differently than you. And what it did is it led an entire people group to think, well, well, God must be for them and against us. It led led to this idea that certain groups of people said, well, God, the one true God is for us and against all of you. Right, And certainly we see that in our world today where there are people who 
may never set foot in a church because of some interaction they've had with somebody along the road and they say, well, I was told that because of how I live that God hates me and I will therefore want nothing to do with the church. And so we see how it started in Ezra and Nehemiah and it led to great mistreatment of people. So here's what I want to do today. We're going to kind of, we started in Ezra and Nehemiah at the, and the next we're going to look back and then we're going to look a little forward and then we're going to end with looking way forward. Okay, so that's where we're going. Just, I know some of you want to plan. You like the roadmap. We're looking back, and then we're looking forward, and then we're looking way forward. So when we talk about the way forward, then you're going to know, okay, at least he's getting close to wrapping up. And it's important that people feel like there's hope. Like, uh, I think maybe the pastor's wrapping up sometime soon. This is why pastors and preachers say, in closing, it doesn't mean anything. It just gives you a little bit of encouragement, right? because we'll say it seven or eight times in closing. So in closing, let's look back <laughs> at where this started. Why was intermarriage forbidden in the Old Testament? This was something that God had told the people of Israel, do not do this. Do not blend your culture with the culture of other people. Do not marry your sons or your daughters to the sons and daughters of the surrounding nations. This started right after the exodus out of Egypt. So we're going back to Egypt where the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt and he was saying, I'm gonna deliver you into the promised land, which is this region that was going to be theirs and they were going to settle it and they were going to be a great nation, the nation of Israel. This was God's plan. Now in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse three, this is just as Joshua is about to take over leading the people into the promised land and Moses leadership of the people is coming to an end and God is getting them ready to go into the promised land and settle this new region for themselves. And he has this instruction to them. He's reminding them of the covenant. And he says this to them in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse three. And here's the command that he gave the Israelites. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Okay, so there's an important thing to recognize here. Notice the progression that God is warning them. God is not saying that the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you because you had something to do with these outsiders. What God is saying is, your involvement with the other nations, what it's going to do when you intermarry with these other people, when you blend your cultures together, their pattern of idolatry is then going to affect you. It's this unrighteousness that is in the other nations that is going to affect you. And your sin then will cause the anger of the Lord to burn against you. That's an important distinction because this was based on idolatry. God was saying, don't do this based on idolatry. God's command to not intermarry was not out of anything, out of like an ethnic superiority or that God only loved the Israelites. It was a spiritual thing. God wanted them to be, here's a churchy Sunday school word, consecrated. In other words, he wanted the hearts of the Israelites to be fully devoted to him. And he knew that blending these other cultures of idolatry was going to bring compromise to that. This was the motivation at the beginning. And what you see then in the book of Joshua, I know some of you are nervous right now. It's going to be fine. It gets better. When we look way forward, it's going to get better. Um, in the book of Joshua, this is when Joshua leads them to into the promised land. And there's 
all the other nations that were living in the promised land. And they had to battle against them and drive them out. And God gave them the instruction. Don't let them stay. Don't blend your cultures together because it's just going to lead to your compromise because their patterns of idolatry are going to become your patterns of idolatry. And at the beginning of Joshua, the nation of Israel is doing that. They're driving out the previous inhabitants and they're like, yes, we are devoted to God. And by the end of the book of Joshua, you see them to start to compromise a little bit. They're like, oh, this battle is going to be difficult. Why don't we just let them stay? We'll make them kind of our servants, and uh, it's going to be fine. Uh, We'll just blend the culture with them. They're fine. We don't really feel like driving them out. And then you can see the pattern begin of idolatry becomes rampant in the the camp of the Israelites. So as you fast forward a little bit to the book of 1 Kings, this is after they have established the promised land, and now they have a king, and King Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel, and then King David, and now you have King Solomon. This is the height of Israel's uh, power and wealth and prosperity. But King Solomon, what started as little compromise in Joshua and little uh, acceptance of veering from what God wanted, now King Solomon, the king of Israel, has 200 wives, which that in and of itself sounds like a lot, right? That's a lot of details, (laughs) a lot of dates to remember. A lot of conversations about how was your day. Um, That's a lot. But he had 200 wives from all the surrounding nations. Solomon liked liked the foreign ladies a little bit. And so he had all these wives from all the surrounding nations. This is the king of Israel. And what happened was his heart was turned away from God. And he promotes idol worship. And he accepts idol worship. The king of Israel. And God brings judgment. And God comes to Solomon through the prophet and says, I'm tearing this kingdom away from you because you have allowed idolatry. The thing that I asked you not to do as the leader of Israel, you have allowed this idolatry into Israel. And that is when the kingdom divides into two. God says, I'm taking this kingdom away from you, but I'm going to leave part of it, the southern kingdom. That's where the the lineage of Jesus is, the Messiah is going to come through. And God says, out of my love for your father, David, Um, This is why I'm going to do that. And the northern kingdom was taken away. And this is what resulted in that divided kingdom. So now back to Ezra and Nehemiah. When they return from the exile, when they return to Judah, they are understandably against this blending of culture and understandably against foreigners in their land and understandably against intermarriage because they look back and they say, this is what caused the problem in the first place. This is why God judged us because we had allowed the idolatry and wickedness of the surrounding people to take hold in the nation of Israel. And you can see this. Nehemiah has a pretty harsh response to the foreigners and to the people who had blended their families and blended their cultures and intermarried. And we read this in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3. It says this, As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, some people read this, and if you don't understand the conflict, it really sounds harsh, right? Any outsiders, anybody not like us, anybody from another nation or another ethnicity, we're kicking you out because, and then other people think, well, this is what, this is why we believe that God only loves certain people because of verses like this. But you have to understand the context. You have to understand the motivation because they had seen the wickedness and the idolatry. This is why Nehemiah and the people, after they had read the law, so they came back from exile and they read the, the, the Jewish law, the 
the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, including that, that command in Deuteronomy that we just read. Don't intermarry with the people. And they read that and they're like, man, we have been unrighteous. And it goes on and here's where it gets, you know, pretty rough. Nehemiah starts treating the people pretty rough. He says, in those days, in verse 23 of chapter 13, in those days... I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, the surrounding nations, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. This is getting real. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take daughters from your sons. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. And then he refers to Solomon, how this is what caused Solomon to get all messed up. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women, it's those foreign women, right? Foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all of this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? When I was a boy growing up in Canada, <laughs> my mother warned me about marrying a foreign woman. And I didn't listen. I married a foreigner. I married an American girl. And they told me, it's going to pull your heart away from all the good Canadian things. And so, uh, universal health care. And all of a sudden, your heart will be turned into doing nothing but paying for health care premiums and watching the NBA. And I'm just like, oh, man. <laughs> okay, so that's rather harsh right there from Nehemiah, right? So why are we talking about this? And you're like, why is he talking about this? Um, well, this is a part of the story. If you're reading through the Old Testament, it's important to understand kind of the context of what we're reading and why this is in there and why Nehemiah would take such drastic steps to get rid of people from other nations. This is part of the story, and perhaps you read it and thinking, man, this is weird stuff. There is a bigger theme at work here that applies to us. And here's where we're going next. As Christians, as Christ followers, it's sometimes easy for us to start to believe that God is for some people and against other people. That our desire to be consecrated or set apart or pursue righteousness can start to allow us to lead, lead us to treat other people poorly who don't share our beliefs. Now, it's important to recognize Nehemiah was following what God called him to do. But you can see the fruit of that generations later where there is hatred between the Samaritans and the Jewish people and wars that are fought. Wars that are still fought today because of divisions based on what we read about this. They weren't seeing it as a matter of just following God and pursuing him. It was those people are bad. Those people are the sinners and we hate them. Our desire to be set apart for God can lead us to treat others poorly. Now, there is a conflict at times, and we feel it. We desire to live for holiness and to live for God, or at least we tell people we desire to do that. We want to live for God, and yet we live in a culture that doesn't. And how do we live in a culture with people who embrace the very unrighteousness that we are trying to avoid? There's conflict there, right? And we feel it. Some of us feel it 
in the sense that, yeah, I, I, I had struggled with that, knowing how to exist in this world with all that's going on. Some people maybe watching or listening today are like, I struggle with this because I've been mistreated by Christians. I've been, the people who have been the harshest to me have been the Christians over the years. There's this conflict. But our call to godliness should never lead us to mistreat other people. Certainly not to hate other people. Certainly not to feel better than other people or feel like somehow God loves us and not other people. When you read the teachings of Jesus, in fact, Jesus is very clear. How you treat others is how you're going to show that you are godly. Jesus says this is all about how you walk this out with not only the people who agree with you, but with the outsiders, with the people who are far from God. How you treat them is going to show the world and show God how much you love him and how much you are pursuing righteousness. This is how you show it, that God is the God of love for all people. So I want to make one disclaimer here, maybe a couple more coming up in a little bit. You're like, just one disclaimer? There might be times where godliness in your life requires a separation from certain people or certain environments, okay? So I'm going to talk to someone who is in recovery. The worst thing that they can do is to hang out with all of their former friends who are all going out drinking on the weekends and thinking, well, I got to show that I love them. That's a terrible plan because your pursuit of godliness will result in you needing to have a separation from that environment or that person. If there is a person who is not your spouse that you are having an attraction to, there is going to be a, there is obviously a time where there has to be a separation there. And it's not a hatred of them or blaming them for anything, but it's just wisdom and I'm pursuing God. There has to be a separation here. And the message of Jesus Christ, though, would say that this is not that all those people are bad. If you're a recovering alcoholic, you're not saying, oh, yeah, these people that I used to hang out with, they're the sinners and they're the terrible ones. You're just saying out of a pursuit of God, I have to respectfully put a separation there because I can't be involved in that anymore. It does not mean that God hates your former friends or it does not mean that you are better than them. You are just trying to pursue godliness. The message of Jesus Christ is to proclaim the kingdom of God has come for all people. In fact, Jesus was very clear talking to a predominantly Jewish audience in this culture of we're the people of God and we hate everybody around us stemming from these moments in Nehemiah. Jesus came to say the kingdom of God is for all people, all people, not just for the Jewish people, but the outsider as well. And this message of Jesus was why he was rejected by the Jewish leaders, because it was, no, this can't be about loving other people because we know that we are the only ones that God really loves. And the rest of these people are God's enemies. So I want to read an example in the New Testament. We're going to look at a couple examples. And actually what we're going to do is we got another map, another visual aid. So here is the map of the kingdom of Israel during the time of Jesus. So there's the same land that we looked at before, but now it is, there is where Jerusalem is, what was the southern kingdom is Judea. Now, if you look up top there, there's Galilee and the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. And so there's a lot of times where uh, activity in the New Testament takes place in that region. But look at what's in between those two. In order to get to Galilee from Judea, you got to go through Samaria, which is why there was so much conflict. In fact, a lot of times people would go way out of their way through the other region just to avoid Samaria because that's where the Samaritans were and they were hated and they were unrighteous and they were unclean. They viewed it ethnically like back in the day of Nehemiah. It's this half-breed of Jewish people with all the sinners and we hate 
them. This is the culture that Jesus is ministering to. Now, there is the story in John chapter 4. And I'm going to read John 4, verse 3 through 9 in a moment. But this is the story of the woman at the well. This is the story when Jesus was in Samaria, a Samaritan woman at the well. Again, now that we've read some of the context, we should have a greater understanding for why this was so, um, you know, so much conflict and so much adversity and so much hatred between these groups of people. And you have this instance where Jesus is traveling through Samaria, encounters this Samaritan woman at the well. And I'm going to read John 4, verse 3 through 9. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Again, you got to go through Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. Jesus is thirsty, needs to get something to drink. It's a long journey. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink uh, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And now we understand a little bit more as to why. This is the context of this encounter with Jesus and one of the hated Samarians. And Jesus goes on to say, I won't read the whole story. You should read this whole story this week. John chapter 4, it's a great story. Jesus goes on to say, well, you can get me a drink of water from this well, but you're eventually going to be thirsty again. And if, what you should do is ask for the living water. And when you have living water, you will never thirst again. And this is Jesus proclaiming salvation through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus goes on to ask her about her life. And he says to the woman, where is your husband? She says, well, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says, you're right. You've actually had five husbands. And the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. So this is, not only is this a Samaritan woman, this is a woman living in sin, living in adultery. And um, then I'm going to read on verse 19 through 26. This is how the rest of the story goes. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Because obviously Jesus knew stuff about her life that nobody could have known. And then she says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Hold there for a second. It's referring to the Mount Gerizim where the Samaritan people set up their temple in the day of Nehemiah. She's referring to, well, we've been told that this is the true place of worship, but I know the Jews say that the temple in Jerusalem is the true place of worship. Which one is right? Which, one, which group of people is right? Which group of people is the ones that are actually worshiping God? Who's doing it right? Verse 22, and this is what Jesus says. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and this is so important, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, yet we worship... Uh, sorry. You, I got the large print Bible, but it's apparently not large enough. You worship, in verse 22, what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
There, that's a great passage of scripture. There is a lot there. First thing that Jesus says, incidentally, what Jesus did there at the very end is so cool. At this point, Jesus has not told anybody that he's the Messiah. This is early on in his ministry. And it would be a while before he would tell other people, hey, I'm actually the king of kings. I'm the Messiah. But this woman from Samaria is the first one to hear from Jesus that he is the Messiah. That's pretty great. I love that. But Jesus says soon to this woman, none of this is going to matter. And he says, the time will come. And, it's, and he says, it's actually now here because Jesus was there. Soon, none of this is going to matter. True worship will have nothing to do with Judea or Samaria or where you're from or your background. If you're a Jew or a Samaritan, if you worship in Jerusalem or Gerizim, it's going to have nothing to do with any of those things. Soon, worship will be done in spirit and in the truth. Based, what it's based on is saying this, is that all of this is going to be based on the living water of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. Uh, receiving the living water of mercy of Jesus Christ, and that is the only thing that matters. This is what Jesus is saying. It does not matter who you are or where you are from or what uh, ethnicity you have or history or even the fact that he is talking to a woman from not only hated Samaria but who's been married five times and is now living with a guy who's not even her spouse. So none of this is going to matter. What's going to matter is just receiving the mercy of Jesus Christ, right? This is what Jesus says, and I love that he then says, and I'm the Messiah, so you can trust me on this. Jesus puts down any notion that God has preferred people. And in fact, Jesus would teach this, especially to the Jewish leaders, that it's got nothing to do with heritage. It's got nothing to do with rule following or which mountain you worship on. And Jesus would go on to say very clearly, if you think that your heritage or your lifestyle or your personal rule following is going to be what does it, you fall way short because everyone falls short. Everyone is a sinner. And the only thing that matters is believing in salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So you understand why when Jesus would go on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, why the, why the audience was so opposed to that. The story of the Good Samaritan where there was a, a man that was beaten up by robbers and then a priest came by and did nothing. And a Levite came by. Again, Jewish leaders, prominent, righteous people, and they did nothing. And then a Samaritan comes by and takes care of this guy. And Jesus says that was the one who was loving as God would love. You can see why this story would be rejected by the Jewish people, right? Like you can't make the Samaritan the good guy in this story. You can't make this Samaritan because we hate the Samaritans. And all through, Jesus says, it does not matter. What matters is we recognize everyone is fallen and we receive the living water of Jesus Christ. And that is all that matters. Jesus would go on and in his ministry and eventually die on the cross and rise again. And there's a great story in the book of Acts, the first chapter of Acts, where after Jesus has rose from the dead and he's about to ascend into heaven and he's got the disciples and the followers together and they're like, yes, our leader has risen from the dead, which means we're totally going to win, right? This is their thought. And it says this in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. This is what the disciples said. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, will you have now finally bring the kingdom back to the way it was when Solomon was the king, when it was one big, united, powerful kingdom? And in verse 7, he said to them, Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then get this, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And they're like, yeah, we get that. And Samaria 
the people that you hate, you're going to be my witnesses there, a, a witness to a risen king and to the ends of the earth. They want a kingdom restored like they knew in Solomon. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm about. I'm not here to establish a group of people that think they're God's favorites. But instead, I want you to be witnesses to a risen king in the living water of Jesus Christ to every people in the world, including the Sumerians and all the people to the ends of the earth. This is the work of Jesus Christ in us. This is what we are called to as well, to reach out, to include, to bring peace. So we know today, we, you know, I mean, it's interesting today in that region of the world that there's still great conflict over land and temples and who gets to worship where. I mean, this is in the news all the time, the, the conflict in the Middle East. But we don't got to go there to recognize there is conflict between groups of people, right? Our culture here, our community, our country is filled with division and hate and exclusion, even in the name of Christianity saying, well, God is for us and God hates you. And so how do we need the message of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ to impact our world today, right? This message of Jesus Christ that says it's got nothing to do with any of these things that we think it does. It has everything to do with just receiving the mercy of Jesus Christ, that hot tip, we all need it, right? We've all fallen short. And we as the Christ followers, we need to lead the way in this. We need to continue to be witnesses to all groups of people that there is life and hope and peace and love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. Showing love and kindness for others is not a sign of unrighteousness in your own life. And rather, pushing people away and judging people and hating people is never a sign of our devotion to God, right? That doesn't, it doesn't make sense for God. God's like, that's not what we're doing. It's not what we're about. Go back to that story of Jesus at the, at, with the woman at the well talking to the sin of the Samaritan woman. When he, when he knew that this woman had been living in adultery and been married five times, the sin of the Samaritan woman at the well did not cause Jesus to recoil and be like, I can't have anything to do with you. How dare you? He loved the person. He spoke about the living water of salvation. So I want us to imagine ourselves in that moment. And it doesn't have to be a Samaritan woman or someone caught in adultery. Just think of, do not raise your hand or anything. But we all know the people who we would think is, oh, they're the worst sinners, right? And just in your own mind, you can think about that, right? Don't. Don't elbow someone and say, you're thinking of these people, right? Me too, yeah. No, think of the person that if you were in that moment having an interaction with someone who you would consider the worst of the worst, what is your response in that moment? And I've, I've felt things like that. I've felt the conflict, and I've heard this from a lot of other Christians in that moment where there might be a tendency to think, well, I have to show her that I'm opposed to her lifestyle. I have to show her. I have to tell her that what she's doing is wrong, right? Or maybe you're interaction with her you would be fearful like what if people see me here with her what if people see me talking to this person what are they going to think what are the christians going to think the jesus was there and the disciples that said had gone away it was just jesus and this woman at the well and what if the disciples came back and said what's jesus talking to that samaritan woman for maybe you have this struggle with that like what if my christian friends see me with this person talking to this person what are they going to think and i'll just say this if you have an interaction and you're trying to show love and peace 
and salvation to somebody else regardless of their lifestyle and you got Christians who are coming saying you should have nothing to do with them the problem is not with the person you're talking to the problem is with your Christian friends you might need some new Christian friends okay so or you might and maybe you're thinking well what if what if this person's sin causes me to sin you know these all these disclaimers in the name of righteousness and godliness from Christians, there has been justification of hate and violence and war and genocide and racism and slavery, all out of the name of we got to keep ourselves righteous and push back the foreigners and the idolaters and the sinners. A couple hundred years later, just as a little historical side note, the Emperor Constantine in the Roman, Emperor, in Roman Empire got saved, and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Again, which is amazing to think of the Roman Empire that was persecuting Christians in the time of Jesus. Now, you know, in the, in the fourth century, it's become the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And what happened then was because Christianity became the state church of the Roman Empire, Samaritans were barred from worshiping on Mount Gerizim. They said, well, Samaritans in this case, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, and so they tore down that temple and a Christian church was built on the summit of Mount Gerizim. And then a little while later, they made Samaritanism illegal. It was illegal to do that. And they arranged for a protective wall to be constructed around that church. And this is kind of where it can go if we allow our pursuit of righteousness to start allowing us to think these people are bad. We should outlaw them. We should make this sin illegal or we should try to try to force other people away from us in the name of righteousness. Here's what we have in our world today is we have many people who would never set foot in a church because they have been told or it has been confirmed that they are exiled, right? That they are outsiders, that in the name of righteousness, you are kicked out and you are not welcome here. And I'm just saying as this church and as the people of God, we need to be the opposite of that. You're welcome here. You're welcome here. You're welcome into our church. You're welcome into our life. You're welcome into conversations the way that Jesus did with the woman at the well. And some people might think, yeah, but by accepting them, won't they think that I'm accepting their sin? I don't think anybody really thinks that, right? I think that's something that just Christians say. If I'm driving down the road and there's a guy who's, you know, got a flat tire on the side of the road and I'm thinking I should help him, but he's wearing an Aaron Rodgers jersey, I'm not... <laughs> Worried that, well, if I help this guy, people are going to think that I'm a fan of Aaron Rodgers. Nobody, think, nobody thinks that way, right? You're just helping somebody. Now, if it was Aaron Rodgers, I would be like, no, 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 I'm not going <laughs> to. I'd just roll down the window, make up your mind already. <laughs> nobody cares what you do next year. <laughs> There's just these disclaimers that we put in, in the life of faith that cause us to think, well, I have to tell them, I got to make sure that that we tell them what they're doing is wrong. Jesus didn't do that. I mean, he just talked about the living water. He didn't say, well, you know that living with five different people and you know is wrong. She knows, right? He just says, you need the living water. Doesn't need a reminder. So here's the, we need to grow in our acceptance and uh, we need to grow in, here's one thing we need to grow in is just in our diversity. Not just Homestead Church, although we do. We need to grow in our diversity of just recognizing the, the beauty and differences around people. It's human nature to gravitate to what we know and what is same and what is like us, and it causes a lot of Christians to just exist in a world of just Christian stuff. 
We need to, and here's a word that causes people to kind of get a little sweat in their back when I say it, inclusion. We need to be inclusive. Yeah, but what about this? We just need to let people know that they are welcome here. They're welcome here. We had, uh, last night after our service, we had a couple uh, gentlemen come talk to me, and they're members of the Christian Motorcyclists Association. I hope I'm getting that name right. I think we got a couple here this morning. And they said, you have no idea that this is the world we live in. And I said, I can imagine that the world of motorcycle riders, you probably get all sorts, right? They're probably not all showing. If people who like to ride around on a Harley might not be all the people that were like, oh, you obviously go to church somewhere, right? <laughs> and he said, and, he, and they told me, you would be amazed at how many people just think because of the way they look that they're not welcome in a church. And I'm like, wow, that's, you know, right in our world today, there's groups of people that are just like, yeah, the church wants nothing to do with me. We need to be inclusive. Find people who are different than you. Find people who disagree with you. Find people who live differently than you or look differently than you or worst of all vote differently than you and say hey there is value here you are welcome in my life broaden your circle get away from all the same thought and people and this world is beautifully beautifully diverse and here's where we get to the way way ahead and here's where you know we're wrapping up here in a minute the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, gives us a glimpse of the future kingdom, what heaven is going to look like. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be physical. It's going to be a place that we are. And the apostle John had this vision in the book of Revelation of what that's going to be like. And here's, here's what it says in Revelation 21, verse 22. This, again, is speaking to the beauty and diversity that is all around us now and will continue to be in heaven one day. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, which says a lot right there. There wasn't a place where people went to worship. There was no deciding factor as to who was in and who was out. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, referring to Jesus. And the city has no need for, of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. Now, I highlighted that in the scripture. By its light will the nations walk. We think nations, and we think like geographical like Rand McNally Atlas nations, the nation of this and the nation of this. That's not what the word is. The Greek, the Greek word originally was ethnos that got translated to nations, but ethnos means people groups. It's where we get our word ethnicity. So I love that. They, by its light will the ethnos, all groups of people walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, of the ethnos, of all people groups. Think about that. The glory and honor of all the people groups in the history of the world, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor does anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What they're saying is the only deciding factor for you being in heaven is if you've received the mercy of Jesus Christ, if you've received that living water. And people from all over are going to be there bringing the glory of the nations. Now, I, when I read that, I think you've got all these cultures and all these people and all these ethnicities in heaven, and they're bringing the best of these cultures, adding to the diversity of heaven, the beauty, the glory of heaven. Part of it is going to be made up by just diversity of God's creation. 
I love that. That sounds great, right? I love that heaven is going to be a diverse place. I love that our world is a diverse place. We need to branch out. We can start to be around people that all look like us and think like us. And unfortunately, to our detriment, Homestead Church is one when we kind of we kind of all look the same, right? For the most part, I want a heaven church that just does not see it as like, oh, those people are outsiders, and that's a reason to kind of dis- uh, exclude them or to be opposed to them, but recognize, man, there is beauty all around us to find people who have different stories, different backgrounds, different cultures, and say, this is a beautiful thing that we should embrace. And to find the people that the rest of the, you know, other people might be thinking, well, you're outsiders. You're not welcome at this church until you clean up your act and say, no, you're welcome here. We're all fallen. We're all sinners. Let's come and show you the the living water of Jesus Christ. Jesus is an all people savior. Heaven is an every people group eternity. This is the work that we should be about right now as people of God. Amen. So this is why I want us to, this is the work that God wants to rebuild in us. This viewing people the way Jesus does. It's what Jesus modeled for us. It's what heaven is going to be like. Let's pray together. Heavenly father, we thank you for your call in us that we didn't we did not earn salvation we we did not behave our way into acceptance from god we were sinners we were lost the worst of the sinners and you reached down and you saved us by the blood of jesus christ and so lord i pray that that would cause us to see others differently not as opposed not as enemies but just as lost people that need a savior that needs a follower of jesus to come alongside them and say let me tell you about the living water of jesus christ that saved me and it can save you. So I pray that you would do that work. Help us to be a church that models the diversity of this world, that models the kingdom of God perspective of we love everybody and we want everybody to know Jesus. So do that work in us and I pray that you would continue to build your church in this place and in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen.